Oh, here it says recording in progress. So you must be getting it there. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. I can't tell you how excited I am about tonight's guest, writer, director, producer, and comedy icon David Zucker, who co-wrote and co-directed one of the greatest comedies of all time, Airplane, which has inspired a new book entitled, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane which he has co-authored with his brother, Jerry Zucker, and their longtime collaborator, Jim Abrahams. Welcome, David. Well, thank you, Steve. And in case anybody forgot what book I'm promoting, it's it's well, that way, yeah. And it's it's funny because the, the Zoom system is not perfect because they I couldn't fit the whole title in the image. I have to tell you, and I think I told you this at coffee a couple years ago, that I have Milwaukee blood. My mother was born in Milwaukee. Oh, she wow. went to North Division High School. Right. And her brother, Dave, owned a drugstore in downtown Milwaukee called the Harmon Pharmacy. I don't know if you ever walked. No, into I, I wasn't too familiar with a lot of things in Milwaukee, but Shorewood, you know, we had, you know, we had Capital Drugs and Thompson's and Labor's drugs which where i worked i think i i mentioned it in the book i worked for a, a drugstore and i got i was fired after a week there you go there you go i mean fired the, the two things that i couldn't do making change and finding things is that somebody's jacket on your chair or is that a dog that's a pillow oh that's a pillow okay it looked actually like a small sheep dog but we have a little dog we have a little pomeranian that Oh, it's just like that. And we have a pillow just like that in the living room. And I often sit on the dog because <laughs> <laughs> and you hear, you know, I, um, I thought I'd start off our conversation about the, the state of comedy today in Hollywood. And I'm particularly talking about movies. Um, if I walk down the street and ask the person, a civilian, to name four comedies he laughed at in the last 10 years, I bet he would have trouble. Yeah, you know, I, I don't see many movies. Uh, you'd have to, I, I can't, I, I see more serious movies than I see comedies. I don't really watch a lot of stuff. But there 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 aren't a lot of comedies. There are and no comedies. I, I suppose I, was Barbie a comedy? I didn't see it, but um I you know, uh I chuckled a few times. Um you know, I talk about sometimes the the icons of our of our lives. Woody Allen kind of de you know, kind of out of favor, Albert Brooks doing drama. Um Mel Brooks his Mel yeah, Brooks did a lot of uh comedies, but you know, but nothing lately. You know, Better comedy is being done on TV. I mean, uh, Larry David makes me laugh. Seinfeld makes me laugh. There's a group called, uh, have you seen Impractical Jokers? I have not. Is this oh something You're in for a treat. They're on True TV. They're in about their seventh or eighth season, I think. 
and they're they really make me laugh. Oh well, that's good to know. I it's a, it's a prank show, a reality show, pranks. You know, they, there's a lot of talk of, and there's always a lot of talk about whether movie theaters will survive. But I think one of the joys of going to a movie theater to see a comedy is to be a, in a room with three or four hundred people all laughing, and yeah. that's well, a collective. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I, I think that, yeah, and that's the great thing about movie comedy is, you know, I mean, you could still watch a drama in your house alone and get the same thing out of it, but. A comedy, you you have the laugh track right with you in theater, and it's real. It's people are going to laugh or not. So, you know, if that if that doesn't if that ends, then you know it's it's too bad. I'm lucky I lived when I lived then. Oh sure, sure. You know, I often wonder because I'm out there trying to sell comedy as a writer, uh, and I find that executives today just don't seem to get it. Now, inter interesting point about your book, which I found not only just so fun to read because I wanted to know all about the making of Airplane, but following your journey to get anything going. Uh, you're talking about the late 70s in Hollywood. That's over 40 years ago. Nothing has changed. It's, I think... <laughs> Nothing has changed. And you think, well... Uh, Zucker can get anything made, but you know it's it's just as hard for me now as it is was then. I know, I know. It, you know, and then people tell you, well, to get ahead of the line, go raise some money. That's right. Well, that's what I'm doing, raising money because you know you can't you can't go apply at the studios, and they're not exactly happy to see an old white guy, you know, coming with a script. <laughs> And it's funny because this is a time in, in society where we all could laugh more because there's nothing more serious than what's going on in the world. And and uh, but let's well, not that I ever cared what was going on in the world, because, you know, all, all of my comedies and we're we're done not really so much about real life, but about, you know, life as seen in the movies. So that's yeah. that's what I did. And so. I, I don't even know if I could do a rom com or something because I, you know, that's not, I'd much rather do a something, uh, you know, which is making fun of another movie. Oh, no, exactly. And I wasn't politicizing your films, which I know were never politicized. I'm just saying that we watch comedy to get away from anything else that's going on in the world. That is true. Yeah. Now, you, what was interesting reading the book is we learned a great deal about the fact that you literally knew nothing about the film business in Milwaukee. You you and your brother and Jim were all Milwaukee boys, which the way you presented was a little left of the moon. Yeah, well, you know, we knew enough to leave Milwaukee, at least, you know, we, we had a choice. <laughs> you know, we started a little theater in Madison. It was successful. People laughed. We were encouraged. And, but we wanted to get discovered, of course. So we had a choice, you know, either go to New York or LA and we figured it would be much more comfortable to starve in, you know, 70 degree weather than in, you know, 30 degree weather. So we, we went to LA and that's where the movie business was. It's where uh, the Tonight Show had just moved from New York. So, and we thought we could, we thought our material was good enough to get on the Tonight Show. And it turned out it was. Uh, and we did get on the on the Tonight Show, but that was not as as we relate in the book. 
It was not a. You I know, couldn't believe the fact that you finally get on the Tonight Show, and because Mickey Rooney went long, they bumped yeah, right. you. Yeah, he was <laughs> Mickey Rooney talked too long, and in those days, yeah, people got bumped. You know that doesn't happen. It hasn't happened in thirty years. So now, when you and your brother were little, and you were going to the movies as kids. Uh, I always ask this of my guests. It's kind of my thing. I always ask, what was your go-to theater in Milwaukee? Where where did you start watching movies? It was called the Fox Bay Theater. There had been a, a theater in Shorewood, but it closed and they made an ice skating rink out of it. But this was a uh, this was the Fox Bay Theater in one suburb, suburb north, Whitefish Bay. And that's where we saw Three Stooges, uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy, uh, Jer- I suppose Jerry Lewis may have had some movies, Abbott and Costello. Uh, I remember Saturday all day, all day cartoons, just nonstop. And so that's where we go. And, the, you know, my mom and dad uh, would leave us, you know, leave us there and we'd come back later full of popcorn. And um, when would you say you started to believe that you were funny? Oh, in first grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was always uh, trying to make people laugh, you know, probably 90 percent to get attention for whatever reason, you know, that that can be worked out in therapy, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I was I needed attention. I still need attention. So so that was a natural for me to make people laugh. And that's what I could do. I found it easy. And uh and, and so that continued through grade school. I would perform in the grade school talent shows and in some of the high school productions. Uh, I was in a rock and roll band in high school. So that was that, uh, you know, check the boxes of get attention, get people to notice me. And uh, and then in college, you know, that, you know, not much happening in college. Uh, you know, I ran for senior class president and I, I got that just to because it was something to do so uh and then after college that's when we started the theater right and of course the 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 viewers who are watching who lived in la back in the 70s uh will remember what you brought to la which was kentucky fried theater the idea of doing a sketch comedy show just just off the charts um were you inspired by a, obviously, you had the theater in in Madison where you had done this successfully. Right. What do you think inspired doing your sketches? Was it all of the things you had done through school? Well, uh, things we had done in school, and you know, the original idea was you know we were able to borrow some videotape equipment, and in those days it was half inch reel to reel, you know, big Sony uh, deck with a camera that went over your shoulder and, uh, and, and we were able to do, and, and nobody had this, uh, nobody had home video, nobody had cell phones. Uh, there were no video cameras. So we got this stuff, which we were able to borrow from a friend of my dad's and we started doing spoofs of television commercials. And then we, we had another kid uh, who joined our group uh, named Dick Chudnow, who was another high school pal and he was one of the original founding members of Kentucky Fried Theater. And he said, we need to do live, you know, live component to the show. So we did that. And so we combined, we would combine the live sketches uh, with uh, with the video, which we showed. 
And uh, I remember going over to Pico Boulevard. Pico Boulevard was in my neighborhood and you got very lucky. I, I found it interesting that the way you describe in the book, you you uh, were given a building with very modest rent to open a theater, which of course is unheard of these days where everything is super expensive. Yeah. That must have been, I mean, the, the gods must have been shining at that moment. Uh, there's no question about it. We were very lucky in a lot of ways, just a lot of fortunate things. I mean, somebody tried to break into the theater in Madison and somehow this little padlock held and they weren't able to, you know, steal all of our stuff and end our careers right there. Uh, but, we, you know, we were able to get this building, uh, which we had through some uh, family connections, and it was an abandoned building and we took it over. We cleaned it up. There was even an apartment above the theater where we could live. And so, boy, when I think back on that, it was uh, it was uh, some incredibly fortunate circumstances that uh, that we, that we had. I mean, when you come out to Milwaukee, come out to LA from Milwaukee with literally no reputation, no connections, just a lot of ambition, and somebody actually hands you a living situation because at the very beginning. It's always about whether you have a roof over your head and you can pay you can pay to buy food and things like that. Right. I mean, we we know about the cliche of the starving actors, but filmmakers still have to pay the rent every month. So this gave you a beautiful base, but no guarantees, of course. No, there were no guarantees. We spent the summer hammering and nailing and, you know, we, uh, we, we even had to, you know, make our own beds. I mean, out of, you know, two by fours and there were mattresses in the building because it, it was owned by a hospital. And uh, we say in the book, you know, how we didn't get, to, you know, hepatitis C, we, we never <laughs> were able to figure out. But, uh, you know, we we just, uh, we did a lot of all the work ourselves. We, we couldn't hire anybody. We didn't have any money to. And and so we lived above the theater, as we, as we said. And then we opened our first show in, I think it was uh, early October of 72. Uh, after spending the summer uh, remodeling the building in literally making the theater. Well, your your style of comedy initially was terrifically irreverent, but as you point out, not political. It was more like poking fun at pop cultural icons, movies, yeah. TV, commercials, which of course leads to Kentucky Fried Movie, which right. puts you guys on the map. Um, but as I discovered in reading uh, in the book, um, the road to airplane was a long road. I mean, uh, yeah. it was fascinating uh, and just inspiring to me because I, I get very frustrated with uh, how Hollywood just does not react well at things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I know that you guys, the success of Kentucky Fried Movie led you to believe that there was opportunity to do more comedy features. Uh, was Airplane the first idea you came up with? Yes, it was. A, we would we used to uh, just leave our videotape recorder on overnight to catch the commercials so we could spoof the commercials. And then <laughs> one morning we cleared off the machine and there was this movie called Zero Hour, which is a 1957 black and white movie. And it, uh, it had the same plot, you know, uh, food poisoning on an airplane and a passenger has to fly it down. So, uh, by the way, by the way, how, how crazy is it that you left your video camera on and just happened to tape that? I mean, is that divine guidance or what? 
more it's more divine guidance yeah this is just everything happened uh there could be a whole book written just about that but is there a god well i think so so uh but you know there we started getting interested in this movie zero hour and we we were already thinking you know we were in the, I had the mindset that serious movies were funnier than comedies anyways we would we would redub movies and uh uh, so so we thought this would be a great movie to redub because it's so serious, you know, uh, Sterling Hayden and uh, Dana Andrews, uh, real hard hitting stuff, not a sense of humor within uh, planets of this of this movie. So but then we thought, wait a minute, why redub it? This could, we were looking for an idea to write. We wanted to write a movie because we wanted to stop doing the theater. We wouldn't, didn't want to act on stage anymore. So. We thought, uh, why don't we just remake this and recast it with serious actors like Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, et cetera. And so, and that's, that became, then we started writing Airplane. And then, you know, we really didn't know how to write a movie. That's when we met John Landis. We asked him uh, for one of his scripts because we didn't know what even form that you were supposed to follow to write a script. And so he gave us the script to American Werewolf in London which he had in the trunk of his car. Because so, your, your Kentucky Fried movie, which was your debut, wasn't really a screenplay. It was a collection of... of, of just sketches. It was not sketches. a story. screenplay. Yes. Yeah, collection of 22 sketches. And then there was a mini movie within a movie, uh, which was uh, our uh, Bruce Lee parody called <laughs> Fistful of Yen. And uh, <laughs> that was a, actually a forerunner of Airplane. Uh, but of course, we... You know, we wrote that first draft of Airplane, you know, right after seeing Zero Hour, and we couldn't get it financed. So that's when John Landis came to see our show, and he said, why don't you do a, you know, a movie based on your show? And that's that's why we did Kentucky Fried Theater, because Kentucky Fried Movie, because that was, the you know, the largest unit that we could get done. It was a $600,000 budget. So whereas airplane would have been two or three. Right, so, right. And you were once again, the gods were shining on you because you hooked up with a not only a filmmaker, but a guy who really knew the business. Right. Landis Landis. Business. He knew how to direct. We didn't know how to direct. Uh, and also we realized from doing Kentucky Fried movie that we needed to direct. We, we, I think we realized how much control the director has over everything in a movie so and i think when we wrote airplane we thought well we'll have landis director we'll we'll get a director and we'll we'll do this movie but uh it was just more you know our our mistakes were corrected for us by right. yes well you know um i think that um the first thing you notice about the movie is the extraordinary casting and the first person i'm going to put up is um is your leading man, Robert Hayes. Robert Hayes. And I, I think that what's very cool about Robert Hayes is that, he, first of all, he's a total unknown. Nobody, I mean, he did a TV series at the time, but the average moviegoer didn't know who he was. No, he how, was not a movie star, yeah. How perfect was he? Well, there you go again. I mean, it's just, he just dropped in our laps. And uh, he was suggested by, uh, well, 
Robert Hayes was doing a sitcom called Angie on the lot in, at Paramount. And even so, you know, our casting director didn't know about him, but uh, his agent called Howard Koch, our executive producer, and said, you ought to try this guy, Robert Hayes, my client. And so uh, Howard gave, I remember Howard brought in this picture of this guy. I said, we thought, yeah, he looks good. Let's bring him in. So he came in, we talked to him, he read. He seemed like really good from the start. So it's kind of like when Julie Haggerty came in. We, I think we knew. No, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was just, uh, you know, there, there was an overwhelming star power with a leading man. And I think that helped the movie because you believed what was going on. Right. Well, we didn't need it. You know, these movies are ensemble casts. Uh, the movie I'm, uh, I have a script now that I want to um, produce in the, uh, in, in the uh, spring is another ensemble cast. Oh, is, and obviously a comedy. It's a comedy film noir. Uh, I think we're going to shoot it, uh, you know, probably in March or April. Oh, that's fabulous. But we're raising independent money because the studios, you know, once they see, you know, they they don't want to hear from me. It seems to me that if you if you bring them Iron Man four or Superman eight or yeah. Ghostbusters six, they're interested. Well, here right. here's somebody that I certainly knew of being a science fiction fan because I've probably seen Forbidden Planet uh, 94 times. Yeah. And Leslie Nielsen was the most serious actor, uh, always played kind of a authority type. And of course, perfect as Commander J.J. Adams on the C-57D in um, Forbidden Planet. And you just, I mean, Leslie Nielsen... Is is anchors your cast? I mean, tell well, us. Oh, he does, and he was the. He wasn't even the first choice. He was the last choice. He was. We had gone to three other actors before him, including you know I think Jack Webb, Vince Edwards, uh, uh, Vincent Price. You know, a, a, a lot of a, a bigger names turned to, turned us down. And then when we when we finally got to Leslie Nielsen, we we thought, yeah, this guy'd be great because didn't seem to have a humorous bone in his body. So we went to our casting director at Paramount and the casting director who had already been brave enough to cast, you know, stack bridges and graves. Uh, he, I think he snapped. He just said, Leslie Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen's the guy you cast the night before, you know, why would you want Leslie Nielsen for this? Uh, your casting director, Joel Thurm was a guest on my show earlier this year. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I got a chance. That was a lot of fun. But um, yeah. yeah. now the other thing that I found interesting when you finally made the deal with Paramount, which, of course, was a bit, another big coup, uh, they started saying that they wanted comic actors in your movie. Well, not not across the board. I mean, they they got that we were going to get we needed Stack, Bridges, Graves and Nielsen. You know, they right. they really this the serious guys. For those. But for the part of Stryker, uh, they wanted somebody more known and uh, more of a comic, you know, shine to them. And we we just didn't want to do that at all. And uh, in Paramount's defense, I mean, they, they showed a lot of confidence in the movie that they would have suggested Chevy Chase or Bill Murray. Uh, but sometimes the suggestions got a little crazy, like... Uh, Barry Manilow was one of these suggestions. <laughs> so, and, you know, we had to make sure that that was uh, 
that was quashed. Uh, even uh, Bruce Jenner came in to read. Wow, as a and, man. And so, and he came back three times. Uh, somebody was pushing it. Uh, the first two times, of course, he came in to read for Stryker and the third time for Elaine. So we didn't realize at the time there may have been deeper feelings involved. Um, I found it interesting that um, Robert Stack took a look at the script. I think he's, by the way, just to, so the viewers know when you read the book and you got to read this book, it's it's just hysterical. Um, the book is all interviews with everybody. It, yeah. it, re it reads like lightning and you've got interviews with all the lead performers. Some of these interviews you must have been done a while ago because obviously they're not with us anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, Will Harris, who did all the interviews, he did he did a uh, a piece for the Onion AV Club, which was called the Oral History of Airplanes. So oh. and he got a lot of those interviews then. And then some of the uh, some of the Graves and Nielsen stack and Bridges interviews we got from television shows where they were quoted. So, you know, we, we pieced a lot of that oh, together. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. But, yeah. I think, I think stack said the first time he thought, th saw the script, he, he thought it was terrible. Or was that Peter? Oh, that was great. Peter Graves, oh, Peter Graves, Peter Graves. Uh, it was worse than terrible. He threw the script across the room and said, this is the worst piece of trash I've ever read. And uh, and and then and he said it's in the worst taste I I can imagine. So, uh, but I think that uh, you know Howard Koch, uh, our executive producer, uh, called him and said, "Peter, you got to come in and meet the boys," as we were known at that time. And so he did. And so I think he was probably uh, relieved that we weren't these drugged out, long haired weirdos that he imagined. Uh, so, so, you know, we, cause we're from Milwaukee, we kind of put them at ease that, you know, well, part, uh, okay. part of the fun of, of reading your journey is the interaction you have with people like Barry Diller, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner. I yeah. mean, these are now legendary names in our business and they were running the studio at the time. Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, you were like, I mean, you guys for that period were the fair haired boys on the lot. And I think part of the part of the joy probably was they weren't spending that much money on you. No, it was, it wasn't a big, big risk for them. Uh, you know, it was, it was put on as a programmer, you know, so they would fill their release schedule. Um, but, you know, as the daily started to come in and they saw the screenings, then Frank Mancuso, who was the uh, head of distribution at Paramount, uh, schedule it right for the, you know, the heart of the summer where, you know, which was, it was just, we always say the seas parted, man. Oh yeah. Well, uh, appropriate at Paramount because they made the 10 commandments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's so many aspects of the movie that of course you describe in much detail in the book. Um, but tell me about, uh, first of all, I know there was a, so much controversy in the fact that the Directors Guild of America did not want to give credits to three three directors. They they put up a big fight against you. Uh, how did you decide amongst the three of you that you all were going to direct? Because obviously that was a bit controversial. Well, so much of directing uh, really takes place before you get on the set and actually deal with the actors and and the and the cameras. You know, there's 
the script, casting, sets, costumes, etc. And once you get onto the set, it's just problem solving. And it was an easy decision just to have one of us actually talk to the actors. And then we'd, we'd confer in between shots, uh, in between takes. And then it was problem solving. It said, well, we need to correct this or we need to do the next take a little bit different. And um, it actually went very smoothly. Did did all three of you do action and cuts or just one of you? No, only Jerry did action and cut. Okay, and was he the, the one, one who would relay our instructions to the actors? And uh, and that that's that's how it worked. It just it was, and then, but as as filming went on, we would all be talking to the actors. You know, it's just it got more informal. the The DGA sent. Uh, a, a DGA guy to the set to watch and make sure that it was just one director. So, you know, the way you describe your experiences with your brother and, and Mr. Abrahams, it, it seems always so positive. Uh, do you think the fact that you got along so well was obviously because you had all grown up together? Yeah, we were, we, we, we have been friends since back in high school. Our families were friends, uh, very close. Our fathers were business partners in a real estate company. It was Abrahams and Zucker Real Estate. And uh, our mothers were close. Our sisters were college roommates and best friends in high school. So there's something about the the a, a, the Abrams and Zuckers, which always kind of went together. So uh, we, we just found it very easy to collaborate. And it also helped that there were three of us because we could always vote. It was always two out of three. And that uh, and that Abrams provided the vowel for the Zaz. So um, during the course of filming, did you ever have a, one of those moments where you could not come to a decision uh, that it was a, a real stymied moment or were never? Did, never. No. We knew we were under the gun. We had... We had to make a, you know, five week, five and a half week shooting schedule. Uh, it was very business like. I mean, we had fun, but we, we, uh, we, we, we were never stymied. I mean, one thing that I've always been grateful for whenever I've directed is that, you know, I knew I had a great script. So each day I show up, uh, these two pages, I was so happy that I had these two pages of script to do. And I could do it. Now, you, I've worked with many directors. There was a million different styles. Some directors come to the set with a specific shot list where they know exactly what they're going to shoot today. They're not going to come on the set and start to saying, so what am I going to shoot today? They're very specific. How would you describe your plan, your team's plan going into the first day of shooting on airplane? Well, we always had a shot list. And, uh, and in the, the movies I've done since, uh, I usually meet with on Saturday with my assistant director and we, uh, you know, compose a shot list for the first three days. And then, uh, and, and then that's, we're, we're, we're very well prepared. You know, there's just, there's no seat of the pants stuff here. It's sure. Sure. Now, very, very orderly. 
they you're making a movie for Paramount, but obviously there was no room on the lot for you guys. So you actually went down to Culver City and made the movie there. Right. It was, uh, yeah, at Culver City Studios. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and we, we have a lot of pictures of ourselves. And, we, we, and also, uh, they were shooting uh, Raging Bull there. So we would see Robert De Niro walking past and Scorsese. And it was pretty cool there. And then we shot two days at Paramount on the lot when, when we did the, uh, you know, the John Travolta scene. These. Saturday night, oh, Saturday night fever. That, scene, was, on, that was on the Paramount lot. Yeah. That, that's that's one of my favorites. I, I mean, the whole movie is one of my favorites. Um, talk a little bit about the airplane set. Now, I know that I've read over the years that airlines have airplane sets that they make for their own commercials. But was your airplane set designed by you guys? No, that was one of the stock sets of a 1950s, you know, prop plane really i mean it, yeah it looked very much like zero hour which was a which was a propeller aircraft right right so, so the, the fuselage it's still the outside of the plane obviously was a jet uh but nobody knew nobody cared so we just we used the mock-up that looked most like zero hour was it pretty tight inside there or would no, you... it was all open it was open oh. in the front Right. And there was a few shots done from the back. Uh, but it was very open. And then and the and shooting in the interior of the cabin, that was also opened up. You know, we'd shoot one side at a time. Uh occasionally there were shots where you know, the center going down the center aisle where you see both both sides of it. But not not, you know, it was it was all movie magic. Sure, sure. No, of course. And and, you, and I even read that um, the, they never, I think you said there are no gimbals. They were not moving the set on gimbals. No, they weren't moving that. They just moved the camera. Yeah. They just moved the camera to give the, 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 yeah. the motion part. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, between lines of dialogue and set pieces. This movie introduced so many uh iconic moments i think one that just immediately bursts forth is the concept of having the mother on leave it to beaver barbara billingsley explain what two black men are saying in their in their talk yeah. i have to say that that uh that that was pretty wretched now i think but was barbara your first choice for that um, oh uh, actually it was uh harriet nelson harriet nelson was our first, and we had her in the meet but i think uh, unfortunately, she read the script, and I think it was there was a you know I don't think she understood quite what she would have been getting into, or maybe she didn't understand. But you know, you had the uh, you know the pilot and the little boy, and there there was you mean the, was, you mean the pedophile pilot the pedophile pilot. <laughs> she may have had some questions about that, you know, or and. I can't even think offhand. There, there are other things. Well, in the again, right. she didn't think the material was right for her. Although right. I think her sons probably told her to do it. Sure, sure. Well, Barbara was terrific. I, I remember yeah. reading years later, somebody was pitching to Universal a remake of Leave It to Beaver, and part of their pitch was bringing Barbara in to serve cookies to the executives. Oh. <laughs> 
They made the movie, but it was terrible. Um, it's a terrible idea. Yeah. Now, one of the characters, I learned a little bit more about it because I didn't really know his name having seen the movie, Stephen Stucker. Yeah. But, and uh, talk about having a live wire on this. On this, It sounded like from what, well, first of all, Stephen Stucker, who does all those gags in the movie, was a mainstay of your fr uh, Kentucky Fried Theater. Yeah, he was just about the star of uh, of Kentucky Fried Theater. He was our our piano player, and he was in almost every sketch, and uh, you know, just as outrageous as you could get. And uh, David, is he still with us? No, he died in '86. Oh, really? Oh, it was during the AIDS, the whole oh. AIDS thing. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was terrible. It was very sad. He passed away, but. You know, it was before they had the cure for it. Right, right. Yeah. Oh. Um, Ethel Merman. Robert Hayes' character strikers in that that mental ward, and <laughs> and and I, I just have to say that the, the part of your strength, obviously, in all these movies is. Just being totally outrageous, and we're, we're, what was the inspiration from Ethel Merman of all people? Well, I think we may have gotten the idea from seeing Annie Hall, and remember when uh, when Woody Allen is on the movie theater line, and some oh, guy man. is going off about uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan, and uh, and Woody Allen is just irony, can't stand this guy. So he just reaches off screen and brings in Marshall McLuhan. And, you know, that's just, so I think we probably, we loved Woody Allen. We loved Annie Hall, Bananas, you know, Manhattan, all Woody Allen's comedies. So, uh, and then, so we, this was back in 1975 when we wrote the first draft of Airplane, we wrote that gag and then it's actually, and the whole joke is that it's, it's actually, Ethel Merman, of course, because it wouldn't have been funny if Woody Allen had brought in an actor playing Marshall McLuhan. It's the whole thing. And, and so I was surprised to read in uh, Joel's, Joel Thurm's book, he says, he told us, you know, you can get Ethel Merman. And we go, oh, really? You know, it's like, <laughs> like the, the dumb clucks that he probably thought we were but you know <laughs> well that was that was from 1975 we were yeah well you know it's funny because the, the scene lasts about 15 seconds but it's so memorable i mean the the fact that uh you were able to throw all these things in there um the the whole thing uh, in the nightclub with the Girl Scouts fighting each other. I mean, you guys were pretty outrageous in bringing Girl Scouts into a bar fight. Um, yeah, we you know a lot of we just said what's the opposite? Who who would be the last one to translate Black Jive? Well, it's the whitest lady on the planet, June Cleaver. So you know a lot of things were just casting against against the grain. The other thing is that. Uh, America is very pro-violence, but very anti-sex. You know, you can machine gun 20 guys against a wall and have no problem with your audience or anybody. But if you show a naked breast, you are really in serious trouble. Uh, you guys 
really, I think what it was one of the hallmarks of airplane, it can be very sexy at times, but you never go too far. Yeah, I think there, there's just kind of an unwritten line that we had in our minds that, you know, what we could do, what would be funny. That was just, that's what we did. What we thought would make us laugh made other people laugh. So that that was always, uh, that, that always uh, rang true for us. You know, we had that line in, in our heads. Sure, sure. Uh, were you on the stages when they did the miniature work? Was that something that you found a lot of fun with? We would go and visit. Uh, Jerry, on one of Jerry's visits, uh, somebody took a picture of Jerry with the guys with the miniature. And that's in the book. Right. I saw that picture. Absolutely. The miniature well, we weren't was there a lot. We, we were not there or... And we were not there. I don't think I don't remember that we were there for shooting some of that stuff. Right, right. Well, it was very realistic, uh, especially the crash land. Um, there's so there's so many other aspects of the movie that are just so much fun. Um, Maureen McGovern, I learned. I guess she wanted Helen Reddy to play the singer. Yeah, we wanted Helen Reddy, but Universal objected because it was too close to their airport. Uh, scene of, I guess Helen Reddy played the singing nun. I don't even remember, you know, who played what. But they they didn't want us to have a singing nun sing to the little girl. I mean, you know, if this occurred today in 2023, you know, no one would, would object to this. But you know, parody really hadn't been done at that at that time. So yeah, all knew, and they were all. Universal got all all wiggy about it. Sure, sure. No, of course. I, I also found it very interesting in the book how many of our top comedy people were inspired by your movie. I mean, you have several quotes from Peter Farrelly of the Farrelly brothers. You've got uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans. Of, and of course, Wayans, and you were involved later on with the scary movies. Right. Uh, and uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier about the state of comedy today. Do you think there's still an opportunity to do spoofs? I mean, is it still? Of course. Yeah, no, there's, there is. There's nobody. First of all, no one can do it. So uh, I, I can do it. So I've got a script. I'm going to shoot it in the spring, as I mentioned. Oh, so, so this is a film noir spoof you're talking a about? film noir uh, spoof, yes. Oh, okay. Although we, we don't like to use the that S word because it's, uh, but uh, it is a spoof, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, not, it's not a spoof of anything in particular. It's a spoof of film noir in general. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I remember the Steve Martin movie that I thought wasn't really a spoof at all. It was just kind of a novelty. Uh, Dead Men. Right. He didn't really do a spoof. Yeah. No, no, no. It was interesting just reusing footage in a, in a fun way. Yeah, it was um, very clever. Yeah. You know, people before you had done a few. I mean, Mel Brooks, obviously, a lot of his movies were spoofs. I'm sure that inspired you a little bit, um, a little bit. We had well, we had seen Mel Brooks's movies, uh, and and we we liked his movies. Uh, but you have to remember, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen's movies were, uh, you know, they they had at their center comics, and they were it was comics acting funny and you know that's not what we ever intended to do we just didn't want any comics or as funny as mel is and marty feldman and harvey corman and dom DeLuise, 
uh, it just wasn't what what our style was at all. So we we had to it was a complete departure from that. So I'm not sure you can say we were inspired by that. I mean, I think we were inspired by Woody Allen probably a, a bit more, but we we love Mel Brooks too. Well, the I think uh, breaking the fourth wall, which is often the term for you know just kind of playing right to the audience, is yeah. is kind of fun. And uh, Woody does that quite a bit in Annie. Yeah, right. Um, the <laughs> the um, I think one of the great coups. I think it sounds like getting that um, the rights to Zero Hour was very good for you guys because it anchored you in a reality story with genuine tension. Right. And we realized that we had, it It, it wasn't parody anymore. It was plagiarism. That's what Landis said. Uh, and, uh, and, and we realized that we were, we were following zero hours so closely that we had to buy it. And it, at that time, you know, no, who cared? It, it didn't have any value. So this, whatever studio owned it was glad to give us an option on it for a couple of dollars. So it wasn't, it wasn't expensive at all. No, it was, uh, tw- I think $2,500 to just buy the option and then 25 K probably to buy it. Wow. Yeah. I watched it recently. The first thing I noticed about zero hour immediately is the lead character's name is striker. Oh yeah. No, we, we kept <laughs> a lot of the names. Yeah. We get a striker. You're coming in too hot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 there's so much opportunity for comedy. I, I always remember the scene where uh, the, the the classic scene in every great news story is all the reporters running to the phone booth. And the right. guys ran to the phone booth and the whole, all the phone booths fell. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's very, what it's what Mad Magazine would have done. Mad Magazine did a feature called Scenes We'd Like to See. And, uh, you know, they didn't do that specifically, but they, Mad would do stuff like that. I can imagine them doing the, you know, exactly well, that scene. Well, yeah. Steven Stucker's character in Airplane is kind of like the guy in the margins. In yeah, Marginal the- Marvin. Yeah, right. Marginal Marvin, exactly. Yeah. And uh, another uh, another famous another scene. I, I thought I, I thought it was interesting in the book. You described the technical aspect of it. The the moment where uh, I guess somebody says the shit's going to hit the fan, and the, right. shit the fan. yeah, we just take it literally. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah. Oh no, I love that. I love that. So you guys were not involved in Airplane Two at all. No, uh, the studio wanted to you know do a sequel uh economically beneficial but um we we really didn't want to do another airplane movie uh but they they really were uh intent on doing it and they wanted us to come up with an idea so we we did and we thought yeah bob and julie they land the plane uh he brings her home to meet his family and it's the godfather and so you know we have the same cast and it's you know the mafia so uh, I but, think you you ran that you, you ran that by Coppola, right? Well, uh, we ran it by Eisner and Katzenberg, who loved the idea, and they went to Coppola, and he said no because he wants to do, uh, he wanted to do Godfather Three. Oh. So you know, look, had we done Airplane Two, The Godfather, everyone would have been better off. I think you're absolutely right. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but you decided uh, the next film you did, which was not not as big a success as Airplane, but is so much fun to watch, was Top Secret, where you spoof right. uh, adventure and spy movies. Yeah, it's Elvis movies and World War II spy movies. So right. that was a crazy idea. And uh, But was that also for Paramount? That was also for Paramount. It was yeah. also for Paramount. Yeah. Got it. But was that as much fun for you? It was. It was every bit as fun. You know, we loved working with Val Kilmer and we, you know, the jokes were great. And uh, I think we realized a after, you know, I think years after the movie came out that we probably should have, uh, you know, uh, we didn't have the character built in to Val Kilmer that we did for Bob Hayes. And that's because, uh, you know, Robert Hayes' character was written by Arthur Haley, who wrote the airport movies. And he's a fine writer, craftsman. And we all we knew is jokes. So we had to figure out, by the time we did uh, Naked Gun, we had to figure out how to, you know, build that character in. Yeah, and you you said in your book that uh, you wanted George Kennedy in Airplane, but uh, he was too much associated with Universal's airport movies. Well, Universal again came in and objected, just like right. they did with uh, the 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 singing nun. Right, right, yeah. and they wanted to make their airport movies, but you got George Kennedy back, obviously for the Naked Gun. We always wanted to work with George, and he was great. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then of course you got Leslie back. I mean Leslie. I have to say that one of the funniest things about the book was you telling me about Leslie and his fart machine. Yeah. Leslie was a prankster and a closet clown, and he couldn't resist bringing this fart machine onto the set. And then and everybody would just and crack, he would try to crack up the actors as they were trying to read serious lines. So uh, and then, yeah, so that was that was what he liked to do. Oh, sure. Well, th that certainly lightens the atmosphere completely. Yeah. Um, music. Uh, you, you uh, again, you were under the right star because you got Elmer Bernstein to do your score. And right. El Elmer Bernstein, the, the man who created the Magnificent Seven and the Great Escape and the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, that Were you there during the scoring? Were you able? Oh, to yeah. Every, every bit. Yeah. Every bit. That must have been joyous for you. Sure, it was, it was scoring is fun. I mean, the movie's all cut together, and uh, that's fun. And Elmer conducted the orchestra, uh, and then we could always make changes, you know, to this or that, whatever, because it was a, it needed to be a dramatic score. It didn't need to be a comedy score at all, of course. Right, right. So, um, and Elmer got it, and uh, and and we said we need a B movie score. So you know. Well, you know, I, I, I able to do that. Yeah. And in, in parking lots, I think uh, with good acoustics, I'm always going humming. Uh, dun, dun, da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> it just it's just it, this. Uh, it's just such a memorable music. I'm such a movie music nut altogether. The thing I also uh, in reading the book and again, I'm going to repeat it to everybody. You got to go out and buy this book. In fact, I'm going to repeat the title. How can you? Forget the title. Surely you can't be serious. That's right. <laughs> the, true, the true story of al album. Yes, here, here it is. 
right here. There it is. Perfect. There. Perfect. It's, it's only event- serious. Okay. And it's available at bookstores. I bought it at Barnes and Noble and Huntington Beach and uh, was happy to buy it. Um, I just, I, the thing that you really, you were kind of scientists in a way, because I read over and over, you would go through and trim things and make sure the laughs, you would yeah. listen to the audience. I guess your first premiere, or pre, pre, not premiere, your preview was for a bunch of Paramount executives. Who right, that, yeah, that was a tough one because there were 30 Paramount executives and it's just not the way you want to preview a comedy. So they had to recruit people. and But the guy who was supposed to recruit the audience was completely incompetent and didn't recruit anybody. So we had to go out on Melrose Boulevard in front of Paramount Studios and you know, try to drag people in who were online to see Laverne and Shirley in Happy Days. So, uh, you know, and uh, for many of them, uh, unfortunately, English was not the first language. So, uh, you know, so we it was it was a disaster that screening. But fortunately, you went up to uh, it was Northern California. Well, we went then with our then we recut the movie. We you know we recut it often to one guy who laughed. There was one guy who laughed through the whole movie. And so we 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 cut we recut it to that guy. And uh and 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 then we went up to the University of California, Davis. Davis, right. Sacramento, I think. And you killed. Yeah, we killed. Yeah. That was like a touchdown. We did it. Yeah. Well, it's funny what you said in the book. I, I found it interesting that you have to be very careful and not putting your jokes all together because sometimes people are laughing so hard they miss the joke. Right. I mean, it's a good problem to have. But, uh, you know, so we we sometimes we extended it. Like when Kareem says uh, to the kid, tell your old man to drag Walt and Lanier up and down the court for 48 minutes. And then, he, you know, he, and he shoves the kid in the movie. If you watch the movie, the kid's just sitting there. One, two, three, four. I mean, for a lot of beats, just just looking and that's because that's how long the laugh lasted. They're they're dragging uh, Kareem down the the aisle of the, the and and I think it was Lorna Patterson has Lorna to drag Patterson. Kareem, who probably weighs three hundred and thirty five pounds. Yeah, and I guess they had to come up with a device that helped her along, right? Right. Well, you know, we wrote. The, it's so easy to write stuff. We just write. Stewardess drags the, you know cream down the aisle but we didn't really practically she can't drag that guy down the aisle you know he's just he's three times bigger than she is so uh so they put him on a a little dolly and so and and she was able to pull him Uh, and even so somebody had to we attached a a rope to it to to pull it (laughs) now your brother jerry actually he's on camera as i guess the guy who's Taking the credit card from uh, Peter Graves for the airplane? No, no, no that's not Jerry. That's that's, that's uh, an actor. That's an oh, that's actor. not Jerry. No, but that's Jer- not Jerry. Jerry and I are guiding in the plane. Oh, you're we're, we're the cones. The cones. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Those, yeah. those flashlight things. The flashlights, right? And you actually filmed part of airplane at LAX. Yeah, a lot of it was filmed at LAX. We we filmed planes landed. We we filmed. Uh, you know, going along the, uh, you know, the concourse, 
the concourse. Yeah, inside the airport, then outside where the where you say the the uh, red zone is for loading and unloading only. That stuff always shot at LAX, <laughs> which is a perfect uh, spoofable topic. Those those recorded. Yeah, ones. Right. I love that they had shared references. Yeah. Well, David, this has been wonderful. Thank you and thank your brothers and Jim for putting this book together because it's a pure joy to uh, chronicle it. And, and, and like I said, very inspirational to me as a comedy writer because I, I, I realize that as horrible as things have been, that this has been happening for decades. You know? Yeah, I know. And it is possible. You know, So uh, I think the book is pretty inspirational. Uh, not because we're so great, but because, you know, we really learned on the job. We were, you know, very, very uh, inexperienced and we still were able to do it. So sure, sure. Well, you've been watching Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our wonderful guest tonight has been, been David Zucker. Good luck with the new movie. Do you have a title? Yes, it's called The Star of Malta. Star of Malta. It sounds right. like the Maltese Falcon kind of. Yeah, way. something like it's kind of meant to evoke that. Sure. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, and of course, thank you for all of the comedy fun. Fun Beyond Airplane. The Naked Guns were just so much fun. I just missed that style of comedy. I hope we can. Well, I look forward to your show. I'm going to try to bring it back. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Steve.